Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Jesus is mysteriously 
to celebrate a feast and upon his arrival visits a place called the Pool of Bethesda, also known as the Place of Five Corpses. This was situated in the city of Jerusalem near Bethesda's gate. So let's look at this uh, uh, passage. We're just going to read it together very quickly. After these things, so we had just followed, remember, the Samaritan story and what just happened when Jesus returns to and when he returns back to Cana from Samaria, he um, is greeted with the Roman uh, uh, representatives and he heals in the field. That man's son, Timothy, remember that story when he breaks down walls of five other cities and leaves and comes back. So after this, he comes to the festival of the Judeans. So all we know, every festivals for the Jewish people were like Sundays for American Christians when we all get together. And in the same way that they would gather at a church, all the people of Judea, uh, or all the people of Israel, would, would seem to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts and festivals. So that's why they're, because Jesus is not a Christian, Jesus is a good Jew. What does Jesus do when it's time for the Jews to gather in Jerusalem for a festival? Music, right? That's what he does. So uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Now at the sixth gate, he goes in. There's a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda. Bethesda, that's what it said earlier in the text. Having five porches, a great many of ill lay in them, the blind, the lame, the widowed, waiting for the moving of the, the waters. So an angel descends into the pool at a certain time and stirs the waters. Whoever then, after stirring the waters, steps in first is healed of whatever disease he has. And there was a certain man who had an ailment for 38 years. Jesus, seeing this, was known there, knowing he had already done so for a long time, says, do you wish to be healthy? The sick, which sounds like a very antagonistic question to ask a lame person. That would be like walking into a hospital room sick and saying, do you want to be healthy? Isn't that weird? When the Bible reads weird, you should go, that's weird. And think about that. So we're not going to talk about that tonight, but just know when there's weird things, everything that's in the Bible is important and everything that's left out of the Bible is important. The sick man answered him and said, Lord, I have no man whom I place me in the pool where the water is stirred. Rather, as I approach, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus says to him, Arise, take your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took his pallet and walked. And on that day, it was the Sabbath. So the Judean said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to carry your pallet. Jesus had this widow for 12 years. Guy gets healed picks up his mat, and they and they attack the widow. I read a quote the other day. Some of you are familiar um, with the, the, the phraseology um, that was used by John Wesley, um, who formed the Reformation in Christianity. And that was a quote from the Nazarene book of Wesley that he had a, a mystic, this is what he said, a mystical experience when his heart was being given. He, he felt a warming pool come over him, and he asked these Methodists actually started a Reformation group, and uh, it was really interesting. And somebody that I really liked said, you know, uh, just know that as soon as your heart becomes warmed, there are always Christians standing around with ice buckets ready to help. So they said, you're not allowed to do this. But he answered them and said, the one making me well, the one that told me, take up your pallet and walk. In other words, the guy that healed you told me to do this. What do you want me to do? Uh, take, and they said, who is this man telling you? But the man had been healed, had no idea who he was. So Jesus, realizing he was in a crowded place, said, withdraw. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, he's become well. Say no more so that something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Judeans that Jesus is the one who had made him well. So the Judeans persecuted Jesus for having done these things on the Sabbath. So, here's where I would like to start. We have to start with a little bit of history, and so if you nod off, or if you're, or if you're kicking those nods off, just elbow one another and wake back up and back down again. Um, because we're gonna, we have to get some history, because this text is so loaded that I guarantee you, if you're like me, you already think you know where the, where all the history is. Um, so I approach this passage with a deep level of predetermined understanding. 
Um, but we, we need to get some, some, some locational understanding as well. So the Pool of Bethesda is just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Another thing to, to, to make note of is the Pool of Bethesda. So it says in most of our Bibles, it would allude to the fact that Bethesda is the Hebrew translation of what it is, meaning five churches. It's actually not because they didn't speak Hebrew. It's Aramaic. So Bethesda is Aramaic, which puts a really interesting spin on the fact that when we try to go back and study the Bible in the original Greek or Hebrew, Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't speak Greek or Hebrew. So it's kind of hard to go back and say, what did Jesus really say? And the language, we're still working with language barriers because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Jesus didn't speak Hebrew or Greek. So in, the, in, in this translation, Bethesda is a, um, is a location that they gave it the name, the Aramaic, to mean five pools. But John describes Jesus as going to such a pool surrounded by five covered um, uh, colonnades. And, and so essentially they had spent years and years and years. In fact, this is one of the most, for years, one of the most disputed Bible stories from, a, from those that would dispute historical value um, because they couldn't find this location. So they thought, okay, this is just made up. It's an allegory or something because they couldn't find it. So then around the 1900s, they were able to find it. Um, but before we get into that part of it, the context of the Pool of Bethesda is really, really, really important. Because at this point, you're dealing with a Greek Hellenized world. So the, the Jews at this point had been deeply impacted, as the rest of the world had, by the Greek culture. Um, so there it had, was a, a certain value for a Greek way of doing things. In fact, if you wanted to be um, those that ascended into um, a certain level of intellectualism, you followed the way of the Greeks. They were the ones that were setting the standard of how to do things. So the Greeks had created a cult around Asclepius. Asclepius. Um, Asclepius was a Greek god during the Hellenistic period that was known as the god of healing. So the Greek god of Asclepius, they determined was a god that healed people, and they developed the Greeks in their culture throughout all of that um, um, uh, Near Eastern culture, developed these things called Asclepion, Asclepion, excuse me, or ancient healing centers that were all across the Greek empire. The ill and the disabled would congregate in these regional healing centers. They would drink and bathe in the waters of Asclepion. And they would then sleep within the temple's walls. They slept on mats and made out sections of the inner section of the temple called the Abaton. And this Abaton was supposed to be a place of divine dreams where Asclepius, this Greek god, would visit you with a dream and talk to you about things that you should heal. And he would give, uh, what they would say, I, this is he's quoting here, but they would say that he would give clues to how to get you healed. Isn't that just interesting? It's like a prayer going, well, if you do this and do this, and uh, it's kind of like Pokemon when you're healed. Um, you just have to go after, isn't that just something you have to go after and go get the healing? Um, uh, you know what I'm saying. Excuse me. So, in simple terms, the Greeks attributed the healing power of natural springs to spirits. This belief made its way into the cult of Asclepius. So this Greek god then would become paired with the fact that they thought the waters were healing. His temple specifically built near to sacred springs with shallow pools of baths. Participants would wait by the water praying fasting, chanting, etc. until this Greek god or one of the agents of this Greek god, which was serpent, just mind that, that picture-wise, it's a serpent, would come and stir the waters to make you when bubbles or ripples were made, um, they would believe that the water had become uh, impacted with its healing potion. The association between divine healing and sacred water activity was a mainstay of every single one of these temples. And it was a cultural statement throughout all of the Hellenized world. So, interestingly enough, now I'm just going to read you. This is directly from the Israel Biblical Studies Institute from their historical religion department. I have to read it. Because you would throw heresy rocks at me if I didn't tell you I'm Christian. Okay? So I'm going to read you what the Israel Biblical St 
studied institutes of practice culture. In the understanding of the case of the Pool of Bethesda, which they um, sometimes translate the House of Mercy, it may not or was likely not a Jewish site at all. This wasn't a Jewish healing site, but rather was one of the Ephephalons affiliated uh, with the Greek god. It's very important to notice that the healing recorded in chapter 5 of John's gospel, Jesus said he commanded the one to be healed to wash himself in the pool, while the story of the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, he does. Now, there's another pool in the Bible, the pool of Siloam, for those of you who are going to go home and really dig into the thing, for all of you, that's your thing, congrats on doing it. Um, that what you'll find is there is a, Jew, uh, a pool in Jerusalem that was more closely associated with Jewish temple healing. It was directly associated to the temple, and water flowed out of the temple into this pool, and they believed that that was from Yahweh. But this was not specifically this five-courts pool. The, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish rabbis say, we just want to get healed. This wasn't our pool. That's kind of important. And it's also, it reinforces that, that Jesus, if it was a Yahweh pool, wouldn't Jesus have told the guy, here's some water? Wouldn't Jesus have used the water if he was reinforcing that God is dealing with the waters? Jesus doesn't use the water. Why? Because it wasn't, it would have reinforced this Greek God myth. So he's going around the way that things have normally been done. There's very, very, uh, a few very, very interesting points here. So Jesus, uh, while in the story of the healing of the blind man, another time does use the water. He doesn't in this one. And therefore, it appears that while the pool of Bethesda was actually a pagan place that Jews would not go, the pool of Siloam is actually connected to the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and doesn't go, if he's going to go to a pool where sick people are laying to make a statement about how everybody should join the club of the Jewish God, you have a 50-50 chance of going to the right pool. He went to the wrong pool. Right? He literally has a 50-50 shot of the Jewish God pool or the everybody else's God pool. And goes to the everybody else's God pool. So he goes there, and, and here's the part where I'm just I'm going to slowly read, because this is the part that, that might challenge you a little bit, and if this bothers you and you don't like it, throw it out, because it really is not necessary, or to, within the shape of what I'm trying to present here. So the, the, the pushback to this is the part where it says that the angel would come and trouble the waters, right? Because it says that the angel of God would come and trouble the waters. So this is what the Jewish rabbis say about that. Just hold on or buckle up or put on your escape clothes. So what about the text included in some uh, manuscripts that mentions the angel of the Lord stirring the waters? It seems that some Christian copyists, unfamiliar with the original cult, when this translation was being put together, added the part about an angel. It's not found in any of the earliest manuscripts that I could find. So, when they're translating this, keeping in mind, this would have been, who knows how many how many Gospels of John there was, right? Because at the time, they would somebody would copy it down, and they typically did that with their resumes, copy it down, get it to somebody else. So when they decided to put together the biblical canon, one of the first things they had to do is try to bring, out of the hundreds of Gospels of John that they had, try to find a consistent theme. So they would lay them all out and try and look verse, can you imagine doing this verse by verse by verse by verse to see, okay, this seems to be in line with all of these. So 50 out of 100 say it this way, 10 say it that way. But what would happen is people had been copying them over and over and over again. So the earliest manuscripts that we find don't actually include this. All of the earliest manuscripts, this is where I'm quoting, all of the earliest manuscripts omit the part of the phrase about an angel getting in the waters. Now, that, if you don't agree with that, or that really agitates you, just don't say anything, because it's not really that relevant. But I do think it does point to and give some credence to this pool not being in the Jewish covenant, a pool that was Yahweh's pool at all. 
stirring of the water uh, while trying to while trying to help his readers describe, unfortunately, some all-subsequent generations of readers in a wrong interpretive direction. And I'm still quoting here, so just don't throw anything at me. Uh, he sent them in the wrong interpretive direction, missing the entire point of the story. <laughs> I'm still quoting, I promise. The stirring of the water was part of a ceremony where the priests of this root god opened connecting pipes with the entire portion of the lower portion of the pool. Because one set of pipes was higher than the other, it caused a stirring of the waters with the air and water leaking into the lower water pipes. So these priests would open up the valves and let a, a pool of water up here drain into a pool of water down here. And when that would happen, what happens? Water bubbles up, doesn't it? Right? It bubbles up. So there were priests who would come up with the interesting lever that would say that when that happened, the water would drain into the lower and it would get in the pool then. But there wasn't ever a conscious need to say, this is because we need to stop this pool from happening. Does that make sense? They just got over it. According to this, it says, the water in the upper reservoir would flow into the lower portion of the pool, but a four to five century, uh, uh, yeah, four or five century Christian scribe wouldn't have known about it. See, this is 400 years later. The Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, right? So they were they were years after this had been destroyed. So they, they it wouldn't have been something that that likely they might have even understood. I'm still I'm still reading. I'm quoting. This is an excellent illustration of the importance. Some of this uh, of Luke's Jewish rabbi professors in Israel. This is an excellent illustration of the importance of recasting a first century Jewish perspective on the scriptures and not trying to read it from our understanding. The stirring of the water was likely happening when the priest would open these connecting pipes. So interestingly enough, in the Greco-Roman world, there was this association with a pool that would do this. And I've got a picture. Oh, there it is. Yep. So they, they actually uncovered it sometime in the early 1900s. So this is what it looked like. And there was the question was always about they couldn't find an area that had five portions of tiers. Um, it's more like five coverings. So like this tier was was like it was more like they were towers that were standing up. Um, and so that you could see the levels here where the water would then flow down. So people would literally lay there and, and that's where they believed that this water, when it stirred up, that it had the capacity to do it. Um, so that's the first thing to understand when you're looking at this is that Jesus is purposely going to a pagan god worshipped healing center to perform his first miracle in public. And if we're really honest, and I know this might make us even more uncomfortable, there were probably people in Rome who gave the Greek god credit for this guy's healing. I mean, if, if you're being honest, I mean, let's just think about how this works, right? It, and it's all, it's not like you know, ABC News wasn't there, you know? So it, 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 all they hear is that there was a guy who had been crippled and for 30 years laid in the pool trying to be healed, and, and then he was healed. So I'm not saying that some people didn't give Jesus credit, but what I guess I'm getting at is that Jesus, an exemplifying God, has never been a, a God that has been um, worried about the credit. God, God's always been humble enough that he'll use any means necessary and could really care less if, if, if somebody says that that was uh, the Muslim God that did that or the, the tribal native God that did that or this or that. It doesn't matter to God. He just heals. I, I'm sorry, but I mean, I don't know any other way to read history that God has always been very, very, very comfortable with us not getting it and with finding inside whatever culture and wherever they're at inside of that current culture in order to heal. And I think Jesus is exemplifying that because if, if there was ever a moment for Jesus to give some like souped up, I told you so sermon about how the one true God is the God of the Jews, wasn't this it? Like he's at a Greek worship center, some guy just got healed, none of the other people got healed, so now it's like, mic drop, follow me. But he doesn't. Serve the only God who can do it. 
talked the other day. One of the greatest characteristics of the nature of God as being is vulnerability. Only we are how vulnerable God is. Does that make sense? Vulnerable. Does he put himself in your hands? He puts himself in my hands to be described and to be demonstrated and to be shown. He put himself in the hands. God put God's self in the hands of the stoning people. And God put God's self in the hands of the lions. And God put God's self in the hands of the Jews and the Hittites and the Moabites and everybody else. All of creation. God literally made himself vulnerable knowing that we were going to mess up the story. And still said, here it is. And we love the almighty God. Most of our prayers start with what? Most of the classic Christian prayers start with, Almighty God, we come before you. Great God. We love the idea that my God can whip your God. It's like the my daddy can whip your daddy thing, except God loses. We love the fact that our God's bigger and more powerful and stronger. That's why we really, really love like a Moses story where his, his rod circumvents the other because we're like, boom, our God. Told you, hashtag owned it, you know? And so that idea, we really love like the rap battle Jesus. We do. We really love that idea of, um, um, you know, Jesus walks in on the scene and like lays it down and just totally schools everybody else where God shows that he's mightier than everybody else. But we do realize that when God had the opportunity to show God's self in physical form, that he did so naked, dying on a cross. You tell me this is not a completely countercultural version of what a God looks like. God demonstrated God's self by losing. Sorry. I mean, that's, if you're standing there as a Christian, how else do you interpret what just happened? This is the guy that's going to liberate all of Israel, and he just dies. So, I mean, that idea of the vulnerability of God, that's how it works. Now, obviously, we know that there's more to the story. We know that doesn't end there, and there's resurrection. But I think that there's, there's an archetype that God's trying to display, and that Jesus is always, 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 always willing to climb inside of it. So I have no issue when somebody comes to me and says that they're a Buddhist, and they were praying, and somebody got healed. I'm like, that's awesome. God did that. said that they have some fault version. Is there a fault kind of like seriously? Is there such a thing as a fault kind? You don't want to make sense. And so when you're looking at this, God is, Jesus climbs inside of that. The next thing you find is the gates. Here's, uh, uh, we'll move quickly through this one. So the story tells us that Jesus comes, remember details are important. So when Jesus comes on the scene, verse one, what it says he does is he enters into the city of Jerusalem through the sheep gate. How many of you have ever heard of sheep gate thing? I have heard the opposite. I've heard the, the eye of the needle, heard the camel, I've heard the eastern gate, the western gate, because that's where he comes in on the the um, uh, the donkey, right? But I've never heard anybody talk, what, what in the world's a sheep gate? Um, the other translation is a lamb's gate. So what they, what I found when I was looking at this is it's, deeply important because the sheep gate or the lamb's gate is the first thing that is done. That's how Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. If you want to be a rebel, uh, 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 I don't even know the word. Um, <laughs> if you're going to do, if you're going to stage a hostile takeover, right? If you're going to come in and you're going to, you're going to kick out the ones, you're going to show a, a, a stage a coup of some kind. You did so in Jerusalem. That's where the power was. But Jesus, coming back in Jerusalem, came in through the sheep or the lamb's gate. 
And this is where shepherds would herd their sheep through. It was a small gate in the walls of Jerusalem. Next to the ram's gate is the main entrance through Jerusalem. And subsequently, the this is the entrance through Jerusalem that every single conqueror came into Jerusalem. It was called the lion's gate. So the main entrance to Jerusalem on this same wall, next to the entrance Jesus used, was the conqueror's gate, the lion's gate. That's the gate that Caesar rode in on when he conquered Jerusalem. That's the gate that Tiberius rode in through whenever he destroyed Jerusalem. That's the gate that every Jew, Jewish conqueror within the Jewish faith that he rose up to try to kick out Rome had ridden into. You ride in through the lion's gate because what it means is I'm here and I have a violent authority and power, a divine right and divine destiny, a manifest destiny even, to overthrow and set up things the way they're going to be. And Jesus comes in as a lamb. So Jesus comes in through this other gate. It, it was the poor gate. It was the gate where the outcast would come through. See, the shepherds stunk so much that they wouldn't even let them come through the same gate. The shepherds were literally the outcast of society. In fact, most people believe that the shepherds were, it wasn't, you didn't just choose to be a shepherd because you were poor. You Shepherds were literally the people who were um, actually um, sexually deviant. People that were outcasts of society. You weren't allowed to be around people. Um, shepherds were people, so they, they just put them out into the, to herd the sheep because they, they can't, they, they don't deserve to be around people. Jesus came in the gate as the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Literally, they talk about in Jewish culture that, a, that when shepherds came into Jerusalem, people literally got on the other side of the street. Not just because they sucked so much, but because they were just so useless. They were considered the worst of the worst. Outcast, outcast to the nth degree. in the shepherd's gate denying the lion's gate. Doesn't this remind you of the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation, they say, look, who is it that can open the scroll? Revelation chapter 5. Who is it that can open the scroll? And I love what it says. Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has triumphed and prevailed. He is able to open the scroll. And I turned, and John says, and I saw a lamb. There is no lion of Judah. There's only in the book of Revelation, is zero times a lion. Every time that it says, behold the lion, they turn, and it's not a lion, but a lamb. Because he's not the conqueror in the lion's way of conquering. This is a totally different kind of conquering. It is a lamb laying your life down. It is a sacrifice. It is a lamb that is is uh, bringing the way of peace. It is that's the way of Jesus. So even the gate at this point matters. He's showing us something different. He's showing us that the way that everybody else brings change is not the way I'm going to bring change. I'm not going to use the White House. I'm not going to use the Congress. I'm not going to use military might. I'm not going to use money. I'm not going to use TV. I'm not going to use media. I'm not going to use all of the power brokers, systems, societies, and structures that say how the game should be played. I'm coming in a different gate. That's what Jesus does. And so what we have to understand is that's why he literally is saying, if you're poor, if you're outcast, you actually have a leg up in getting what the gospel is all about. And I mean that literally. In fact, I read a thing the other day that said, specifically, if you have dealt with extreme suffering where you've been outcast or have dealt with some challenge at a young young age, those kinds of things actually, according to Jesus, I'm not saying that God designs them, but they actually serve as giving you a leg up in understanding how the kingdom really works. That's just how God does things. And so he doesn't start from the top down. This is not a trickle-down kingdom. Reaganomics don't apply in the kingdom. It is a bottom-up 
kingdom. There is no lion, but only a lamb. So Jesus comes in this way. And interestingly enough, he shows us that his power is only self-emptying, self-sacrificing, co-suffering love. I'm going to say that again. The power of God is only self-emptying, self-sacrificial, co-suffering love. Another word for that is crucified. The way of the cross. So, the next thing that I might really want to think about is the story. And I have to end with this. Is Jesus says, if you remember, that he connects the guy's healing to sin, doesn't he? Does that bother anybody? Because, like, it deeply bothers me. When I read it, I was like, wait a minute. So, Jesus said, go and sin no more, lest your illness come back worse. Does that kind of fly in the face of what we've been talking about God is like? Is that a bit of a fly in the ointment? It is to me. It's like, well, wait, Jesus, what are you trying to say here? Because that kind of lines up with the way I used to think about God. Well, he's punitive. Like, you messed it up. And now, you know what? I gave you a healing. You couldn't even do that right. You sinned. So guess what? Not only are you getting that stuff back, but I'm giving you more. It's like when somebody doesn't do their chores. So now you don't just have to do your chores. You have to do your brother's chores too. That really seems like how God works. So it really bothered me when I read that. So we're going to close with this. In my view, the most interesting element of this story is Jesus' connection of sin and physical malady. At this time, it was widely thought that you, um, a physical malady was the direct result of your or your family's sin. So we have to understand that when he's saying this, he's speaking to a cultural mindset that you didn't, you weren't sick because of something that happened because of DNA or because of uh, th- they had didn't have major medical advancements we have, so they knew there had to be a cause, and because everything came from the gods, everything was God or Satan done. In fact, for the Jewish people, if you were a real traditionalist, everything came from God. So all good and all evil came from God. Is is what a lot of the very very religious would have thought. So what they determined then is because if there was rain for the crops, it came from. And if there was drought and no rain, it came from. Isn't that just a great thing? So we just took that. And we just put it right on the face of Jesus and the God Jesus talking about it. So then it it perpetuates this idea because what they said at the time was if they would actually look at somebody who was sick and he couldn't walk and they would and remember the text where they asked Jesus, the disciples said to Jesus, so who sinned? Was it him or his parents? That's a good one. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. So Jesus was working with that worldview. Maybe we do that when we do new things. Right? So they were there was a worldview that Jesus was speaking to. Jesus addresses this. And in that other passage, when they said, who sinned, was it this man or his parents? Jesus says, absolutely not. There is no sin that's the cause. So we already know Jesus' statement. He's made it very clear. So he's already said, sin was not the cause of illness. So we know where God stands on it. So he is actually, in this passage, doing the opposite of the way we would read it. So he's not saying that sin is the cause, so be careful and don't sin anymore because then your illness will come back. He's actually doing the opposite. He's trying to reframe what sin is. So one of these days, we're going to spend like two months just talking about what sin is. Because there's so much baggage with that word. I honestly wish that we could just not use it, but we can't. it's all action-related. Most of what we call sin in Christianity is actually symptom of sin. It's not what you do wrong. Sin and action are completely unrelated. So, we 
deal with sin when we're there to orient, orient the framework. Jesus dealt with sin in a relational framework. We like performance, don't we? Good pro day. Tit for tat. Earn it, keep it. I did right, and I did this, so God is happy. I did this, didn't do this, and so God is unhappy. This means everything Jesus spoke was not about performance, but about relationship. And everything he spoke about had its roots in what God wanted to do in restoring and healing in what most of the patristics would call the whole. All of creation being redeemed and restored. We're much more interested in what Thomas Merton calls our personal salvation project. When we get saved, uh, Pastor Bill, what's the thing that we would always ask people? Have you asked Jesus to become your personal Savior? It's our personal salvation project. It's individualistic in every single way. And so if it's all personal, so it's all on me. It's not communal. What Paul actually says is it's the whole thing. It's not personal. It is personal in that it's relational, but it's not personal in that it's happening, whether it's happening to you or not. You're, it's, it's, it's completely the whole that God is redeeming because God has complete. In fact, what Paul would say is that God redeemed the whole, recognizing that the gospel ministers to the whole group. So Jesus came with big statements like everybody's in, hoping that that gospel would then move to the personal. Does that make sense? Because if you take the whole thing and say it's in, it's restored, it's done, it's worked, then it moves to the personal. But we try and make it personal and then make it our job to try and take it to the world. Does that make sense? So it becomes our personal salvation project, and we try to then share with somebody else how they should have their own personal salvation project. You're incapable of redeeming the whole. Have you ever thought about how weird it is going take this gospel into all the other most parts of the earth and then will the end come? Is that really going to happen? I mean, like, you realize there are people who are counting, right? There are literally people who are counting who still has not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing that as soon as the last person hears, the elevator goes up, folks. There's websites devoted to this. Missions spend millions of dollars a year focusing on what parts of the world have not heard the gospel yet. It's a good thing that according to Paul, if you see creation, the gospel is all around you. Then that means you are redeemed. Your entire creation is redeemed and the beauty of the creation is recognized. You don't need a Roman road, you just need Jesus. So, what you find is we get very wrapped up in this performance thing because most of how we view our spiritual life is broken down into a justice mindset where good people get ahead and get tax breaks and bad people get prison. And then there's other people who get tax breaks that don't work and which the people who do work and use tax loopholes get really ticked off at those people. But that's a whole other conversation. So, the idea is because we really don't like grace here. Somebody getting something that they didn't earn really doesn't go well with us, actually. So when we break that into that, or we have a business mindset, right, that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can tell your landlord you'll get healed and saved and everything else. Or we like the athletic thing where it's all about I want to be on Jesus' holy all-star team. And it's about our stats, you know. So what's your, what's your uh, salvation batting average? It's performance-oriented. So Jesus comes and deals with a completely different mindset. He, he can't even think with that framework. He says, as, as you might say, put a different thinking cap on it. You have to look at it differently. And everything Jesus spoke about is about the whole. This way the gospel was supposed to work in participation and redemption of human consciousness and to heal the whole and then heal the individual. This was the gospel message that was to be a new container so that the new wine could go in it. The problem is we keep trying to put new wine of the gospel message in our old containers. And what happens when you put new wine in old wineskins? It bursts. It can't contain it. So Jesus comes and says, if this is true, the new gospel would change actually from 
our social ethic. It should change our politics. It should change every way that we view things in life, how we act, how we think, how we do things, and how we live. Because the kingdom of God is all around us all the time. This is the message of unitive restoration, where the entire cosmos is completely restored. And I love Richard Rohr says it this way. It came from love and is returning to love. It came from God and is always going to return to God. It's the trajectory that's set. We can't do anything about it. So we shouldn't get super excited when we hear that Iran and, and Israel are getting ready to have a battle and think, well, here it comes. The end's finally here. I hope they fire some nukes soon. That's what we used to do. War in the Middle East. If it was a, an earthquake in a diverse place, we got super excited because the end is near. Famines and pestilence. Isn't it weird? Doesn't it seem countercultural to Jesus that we would be getting excited about famines and pestilence? Like, hallelujah, that means that I'm getting ready to get out of here. So it's not about that. It came from God, and it's going back to God. I would like to consider the importance of and the challenge of the word in our religious culture, challenge. I love this quote uh, uh, Julian of Norwich said, first the fall, and then the recovery from the fall, and both are the greatest challenges. If sin wasn't part of our equation, if messiness was not part of our equation, would you need mercy? Would it even be important to have grace if you could get saved and then be holy and righteous and perfect? If self-discipline could do the work, would you need grace and mercy? It is in falling down that we learn almost everything that matters. Or don't even know that you have it before you can really understand what it means to seek for it. It seems fitting. In fact, you almost have to ignore it in the Gospels to not seek. It seems that we must fail, we must sin, we must transgress, and then need mercy and forgiveness and love because of that very transgression. So your failings are part of the point. And what Jesus is trying to say is not go and don't do that anymore. He's saying don't go and associate your failing, your sin, with your physical state anymore. Don't associate your identity to your mistakes any longer. He's trying to give him a different frame with which to see his relationship to God, his relationship to how God sees him, not say God's punitive and so if you mess up, this thing's coming back on you twice as bad. He's actually saying it was never a mistake that could have caused this and you have allowed this to define your identity. Don't go live like a paralytic. Socially, don't live like a shamed person. Because that sin was never there from God in the first place. That, that paralyzing framework of mind was never there. Because your sin is something that's part of the bargain. simple. Otherwise, we don't need the gospel. If, if it's not part of the bargain, you're God. So it's supposed to be there. It's part of it. Up until then, all of our God talk, until we get back, all of our God talk is largely academic and formal and discipline focused. We don't really know love until Is 
towns, there are so many languages where we recognize that we must be this. It, there's this thought that, you know, you have to do it right. You have to do it right. You have to do it right. You have to live a certain way or be a certain way. And what it's actually trying to tell us is, no, it's never been that way in the first place. So he's not saying go and sin no more. He's it's we are we think he's talking about actions. He's talking about a framework of identity whereby sin is not an action. Sin is a separateness from relationship. And what he's saying is go and live in a way that knows that you've always belonged, that you've always been in relationship, that you've always been acknowledged, that you've always been beloved. Because as soon as you separate faith yourself from that, you're sick again. You're sick again as soon as you separate yourself. Because in reality, that's the idea. Some of you have heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis. Most of us have him on our calendars. I wish you would read him. C.S. Lewis said, sin is a refusal of mutuality and is breaking down of separateness. Sin is a refusal of mutuality. And I wouldn't love if you would just take that up and drop it. And then SOTUS actually says that sin is not just a refusal of mutuality in relationship with God. Sin is a refusal of mutuality in relationship with anyone. It's where we refuse our neighbor. It's where we refuse our enemy. It's where we refuse creation as God has designed it to be. It's where we refuse to see the image of God all around us. That's why Jesus says loving your neighbor is equal to loving God. That's the point. Do you realize how counterintuitive this is? It completely upends the ego in every single way. But it's also hopeful. The playing field is now completely level. It is actually your mistake then that leads you to God. Otherwise, the doctrine that the sinner has a leg up doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. And and, and remember how there's that, hasn't you heard that? Um, really unique passage where it talks about that that sin uh, that uh, uh, that it actually great love comes in line with your ability to recognize you as a sinner, you as one who you are repetitively doing this, and I always would get really frustrated because I was a good discipline person. So I would get really frustrated with people who, I'm like, wait a minute, so God, you're actually saying you're extending great love to this person who really can't get it right. They can't figure out self-discipline, and I'm doing all the right stuff. But that's the reality that he's trying to prove. It upends our ego, because otherwise, people who, who struggle with self-discipline can never be part of the kingdom. And that's never how God works. That's just not how he works. So what happens is, Jesus gives us this idea. He gives us and he connects sin to healing because what he's saying is I'm healing the whole thing and the sin is not your action. The sin is not the fact because Jesus could have rebuked the guy for being at the wrong pool, couldn't he? Wouldn't wouldn't it make sense in our mindset? Jesus healed the guy but then said, and listen, you need to start going to the Yahweh pool. You're in the wrong worship. You're in the wrong house of worship. No, he doesn't do any of that stuff. What he does is he heals the guy and says, now go live in a way that showcases that you can truly hear me. It's relationship. Sin is not about action. Sin is always about relationship. It is possible that Jesus told the lame man to sin no more, not because this was an attainable or even necessary task. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus didn't tell this guy to sin no more, not because this was attainable or even necessary, but rather to say, leave here knowing that you are not separate. You are not alone. There is no one, no system, no principality or power that can tell you you do not belong to God's sacred family. That's what the message is. This to me is actual good news. This is the gospel of a God that is so intent on being with us, so intent on finding us where we are, so intent on letting us know that there's nothing to fear, that God put on flesh and showed us what it's like. Jesus says so much in the passage, because the next passage is, I do nothing that my Father first doesn't tell me to do. Now, 
that kind of messes with the whole God cannot look upon sin thing, doesn't it? Because I don't know if you remember where Jesus was, but he was in a pagan worship center. So God can't look upon sin. Jesus goes to a pagan worship center and then says, and I don't do anything God doesn't do. There's nothing I'm doing that isn't completely who God is and in full relationship with who God has always been. Jesus makes it even clearer. When you see me, you see God. You see who God is all along. Where is God? It's probably a question you've asked yourself. Where is God? Maybe we've asked it indirectly and Like Jesus, that we're not afraid to come into the 
sweet shape, that we're not afraid to come into the way of the land, that doesn't, doesn't look for power, that doesn't look for prestige, that doesn't look for possessions, but looks for the gospel, the good news, the kingdom that liberates and says, I have come to preach liberation to the captive and sight to the blind and hearing to those who have not heard anything good said about them their entire life. I have come that those who are bound can be free and that like the Exodus story, that deliverance would be the song of the oppressed and that liberation would be the song of the redeemed, that we would be a people who live in the in-between difficult spaces of the prophetic life. Help us, God, to show what Jesus loves us and to be those who sacrificially lay ourselves down and die for you. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.